Hey guys, welcome to the Control Yourself podcast. I'm Dr. Andrea Ospina. Um, for today's episode, um, we had a visit from Hunter Cook, who's one of the functional range systems uh, lead instructors uh, who came out to visit from California for some uh, business. Um, however, we, we sat down and, and we had a session. Now, this session was originally supposed to be just a, a Q&A. We were sitting down and we were just going to fire off a bunch of question and answers and, and, and see what we came up with with regards to um, posting or with regards to sharing um, on our website. However, uh, we ended up, as we often do, rambling on for quite a long time um, about a variety of different topics that we thought might make a good podcast. So instead, we're going <clears> to <throat> let this go or uh, put this out as a podcast. Um, now, in this podcast, we have a variety of uh, different topics that we touch on. Uh, not always related, as they say, we started off in kind of a Q&A format before it deteriorated, so to speak, into a, a, a long form conversation. Uh, but in the conversation, we, we cover a lot of topics. For example, we talk at length at sports specific train, uh, about sports specific training. Um, and in fact, during the podcast, we talk about some very specific cases of athletes that I've seen recently. Uh, and I believe that Hunter has seen recently and, and how we alter the training uh, depending on uh, on the the sport and the patterns that that are displayed in that sport, uh, we talk at length about programming for non athletes, um, which is not a topic that we give enough uh, attention to. So, how do you program for those people who just generally want to be well and want to move well, uh, not necessarily for sports, but just for life in general? Uh, we talk about the important difference uh, between effort and intensity. Uh, and how that changes the the uh, training of your clients. We talk um, about joint longevity and ongoing joint health. Uh, we review some uh, athletic injury force profiles, um, and then we contrast that against athletic training force profiles. Once again, uh, discussing the idea that um, sports come with certain force inputs that must be uh, countered or absorbed by the athlete. So how do you match the force profile of the sport to the force profile of your training. Uh, we also uh, speak at length about the uh, rehabilitation of muscle injuries and, and how a layperson, uh, a non-trainer um, or a non-therapist would manage their, their own uh, muscle tear and a bunch more other topics. Like I said, this is a mishmash of different topics, but we thought it would make a, a good podcast. So I, uh, I hope you all enjoy. First question, what are we talking about? FRA findings. Okay, go ahead. <clears throat> the answer might be different for a hobbyist or a pro athlete, but why is it so important to do a functional range assessment or an assessment in general on our athletes and clients to measure change over time? So we're talking now not about the initial... So obviously it's, it's relatively obvious why you do an initial FRA, right? Because without an initial FRA... The idea that you're going to program any type of training for someone is like saying you're going to do it without knowing the repertoire of movements available to you. Right. And as we always say, <clears throat> you can't move where you can't move, so you can't train where you can't move. So in order to know what is even available for the particular client, um, without doing an FRA, it becomes let's just <clears throat> try 
a predetermined pattern and see how it goes, right? With FRA, you get to build out your client, so to speak, where you can document all of their um, capacities, all of their potential for new capacities, um, or find out where their potential is lacking, and then you can start to uh, put forces or training inputs forward in order to try to solve those. But we're talking now about the follow-up FRA and why the follow-up FRA is important uh, from an athletic perspective. Yep. Um, so there's a, there's a few ways we can go here, but one way that we do at the ISM we talk about is that if you take any athlete and you, and you run their ISM, I'm sorry, you run their FRA, uh, you get the breakdown as to what they're able to do, what they're able to not do. If you then put that person through, let's say, let's say they're power lifter, and let's say that you do the FRA on a hip, you're going to get certain findings with regards to passive range of motion, active range of motion, uh, control of ranges of motion, etc. <clears throat> if you start training that joint specifically to achieve capacities and then redo an FRA, you're going to see improvements in the FRA uh, depending on where you put the work. Absolutely. Um, and then. To some extent, you'll see improvements in a variety of different places, especially, for example, we've talked about before, if we, we, we start with just capsular improvement, that capsular improvement will bleed into their linear capacities and their linear abilities. But if you take that same athlete, let's say they are a power lifter, um, and then once we're done with that hip and we're quite happy with the hip, if you run them through um, you know, a wave where, where they are trying to increase their squat. So the problem with a squat is, is that a squat is not for your hip. Your hip is for your squat, but it doesn't work in the other, in the other way. So what happens is, is if you continuously start to put squatting into that hip, that hip being you know, what all joints are, which is just adapters to their external environment, will start adapting towards that squat. So if you had an FRA finding, and then you're doing, let's say, a three, four, whatever month wave of squatting, when you redo that FRA, what you will see is you will see decline in the hip in most areas, and then possibly some improvements in other areas. And those improvements are related specifically to the pattern you were training. Right. Um, but you will see a drop in ranges of motion not being used um, in areas that you're not funneling force into. And that would go for for any athlete in any scenario, and it all comes back to the pattern situation. Right. Right? You were... So, and then the way I like to explain it to my athletes is that, and athletes know this, and the reason why I wanted to have a conversation about this is because most people that just watch athletes on TV don't know this, but when you have that follow-up FRA, and now I'm working with an athlete for several years in a row, mm -hmm. so now I have several years of data on their body, just like you said, it's using the powerlifter example, like we have the in-season and off-season. So if you have that off-season where you can work on the hip capacity, mm -hmm. you could say, like, look at all the work that we did. Look at the FRA at the end of the off-season. Look at how things got better. Mm -hmm. But then when you have them go back to their competition season, powerlifter or not, you could talk track athlete, you could talk basketball athlete, whatever it is, baseball athlete. And then they have their competition season. And then within that season, they might have an injury or two or issues come up. And then you do the FRA at the end of that season mm -hmm. where they can't put a ton of effort into internal training. They're in mm -hmm. kind of maintenance mode at that point. Mm -hmm. And the FRA can be used to show, like, how have the physical qualities changed? How have your capacities changed? In this case, in a potential negative way, mm -hmm. because look at what your sport's doing to you. Mm -hmm. Because the sport isn't something that's going to maintain the physical qualities of the human body. It's expressing them. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So and as it's expressing them and as they're pushing redlining every single week, they do end up a little bit stiffer, 
little bit less range, a little bit less strength in some areas, a little less capsular space. Um, and I could show the athlete, like, look at what track and field is doing to your body. Look at what baseball is doing to your shoulder, which is exactly why we do what we do in the offseason to try and return those capacities to that person. And we've discussed this at length in the past. Like with a professional athlete, this is a tug-of-war battle. We don't always win this battle, but we have to try, and that mm-hmm. gives them more time with their sport. Mm-hmm. With a hobbyist and most people's clients, we could win this battle for sure just by learning to program better over the course of all their cycles. Mm-hmm. Uh, which brings us to another problem is, is that most hobbyists <clears throat> are training based on the um, incorrect notion that they are professional athletes. Correct. So the, the idea with the, like the thing that makes an athlete an athlete is that they have um, an ability to execute force through a range of speeds in a very particular way to produce a reproducible pattern that is golf, that is baseball, that is anything else, right? Um, and with hobbyists, that, that is indeed not the case. The, the problem with hobbyists is that they have to realize that their sport is more akin to the original evolutionary basis for the human being as, as a whole, which is not to throw a ball at 90 miles an hour, and it is not to lift as much weight um, above your head in a very particular patternized way. And we've talked about this a, a lot before, this idea that when you run your patterns, you're, you're, you're going to abut against consequences for those patterns. And sometimes it might not be clear what I mean by patterns, but any pattern to me is any time uh, an external mind, like a coach or a therapist or a trainer, confines the variables of motion um, in more and more confining ways in order to hone you towards doing a particular thing well. So it's like you have this this body that has all of these motions available and all of these motions are supposedly supported by uh, tissues that are able to defend against you know, improper motion or, or too much motion or too little motion. So you have all these, these available opportunities in let's say a hunter-gatherer or a regular human. And then to say I want to become a hockey player is to say that I want to alter the abilities of my body and hone them towards whatever movement patterns and speed repertoires are are necessary in order to do the thing that is hockey. But that comes at a consequence as you will be losing the other capacities of a shoulder joint as you turn that shoulder joint into a pitcher's shoulder or into a hockey player's hip. Um, And really, the the idea with internal training is, like you said, you're constantly trying to battle the consequences um, in order to allow the body more options with regards to to how it moves and how it deals with... with, um, variables during movement as they occur. And that's the thing with patternizing is the other thing is that you can over patternize someone so they can do something so well and you've you've honed down on the exact pattern of motion such that you've trained or overtrained particular lines of tissue to the exclusion of other lines in order to improve that skill, in order to accommodate to the motion. Uh, and that's really what you're doing when you're skill training. You're inducing purposeful accommodation in order that you can hone your energies towards one particular thing. And of course, the problem with that one particular thing is 
as soon as you get honed too far, any deviations from, or any time the body is called upon to deviate from that pattern, it, it deviates by adding load into tissues that are otherwise untrained now, or right. they're much less trained than the patternized tissue, uh, and hence you get these, these injuries. If the only way you train is practice based around efficiency of a skill, mm -hmm. then you have less movement of vari variability for when you get perturbed or you get an issue happens or um, something comes that you don't expect. You know, right? funny, another way to say that, like, like you're just saying, is that people do have that idea that the more patternized, the better. But when you're playing your sport or doing your particular sport, it isn't like all of the variables are already set right. prior to play. They might be set prior to training in the gym, uh, but those variables are not set prior to play. So what we know about movement now is that when you do move, the movement depends on the plethora of incoming sensory information right. that we're trying to juggle as you move. So the idea that you will stray off the pattern um, is not only uh, a chance you're going to stray off the pattern, you will stray off the pattern. So although patternized training is necessary for that athlete, the idea that you have to expand their opportunity for force inputs is, is something that's, that's under, 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 it's underutilized in athletic training specifically. 100%. Bringing yeah. back options. Bringing back options. Right. Now, bringing this back to the layperson, what that does is it completely changes the way a layperson should be training. Because like we said, you look to the professional athlete and you say, well, those people are at the pinnacle of, of health. And of course, we know that high performance athletics comes at the consequence of physical health, right. not to the benefit of physical health. Right. Now, that's not to say that striving to achieve an athletic goal is not going to bring health benefits, but there is no one such, such thing as one type of health, right? right. You, you might be getting cardiovascular health, you might be getting mental health at the expense of your left elbow, which is being trained in a particular way and at the exclusion of other ways. Exactly. And, and with physical training, there's a point of diminishing returns for all the qualities that we're going to train in the body. It's like if three days a week of strength training, even using our model is good, it doesn't mean six days a week is twice as good. This is true. Right. So it's there with everything. Uh, what we're doing is we're showing the general population, our professional athletes programs, not we, but like magazines and social media accounts, and things like this, saying this guy who is enhanced and is working towards his top end athletic career. And the 1% of the top people is doing three sets of 10 of this exercise and doing this and training for two hours straight. And then we're showing the general population that to almost like, look at us, look at what we're doing. But then everyone goes, well, that's how you train to be that athlete. That's how I should train too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem mm -hmm. that, that they don't have the history of that person. They don't have the goal of that person being the 1% athlete. They don't, they're not in that person's shoes. So uh, I, I've always found that interesting is like what these magazines share these different celebrities or, or top end athletes workouts. And it's the opposite of helpful mm -hmm. because it gives no context as exactly why that person's doing that or where they're at in their career. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's the way exercises are perceived um, in general. So there's no shortage of, of Instagram posts entitled the five best exercises for this right. or the, the five best mobility exercises for your hip or do this to unlock the mobility potential of your hip. And unfortunately, 
um, what is being demonstrated is that particular person um, and maybe the patterns that they have selected to do. Mm-hmm. And of course, those patterns are usually the ones that they're good at because you rarely see someone posting something where they're doing something where they're not good at. Right. But that brings us to a, a, another conversation, which is things you're not supposed to get better at training. Like, it's a weird, it's a weird concept. What I mean by that is Training is not supposed to get easier. You're not supposed to fight for efficiency in training. That's the difference between training and skill development, where in one case you are trying to get more proficient at a skill, and in the other case you're trying to change the variables so as to not get particularly good at one skill. That keeps the, the force or the power of adaptation in play Whereas in skill development, you're decreasing the, the importance of the inputs to the body right. um, because the body has accommodated or has, used, has learned to give you the result you're looking for, utilizing less energy in order to do it. Right. And we know that energy is the currency of adaptation. So as you improve your skill and you use less energy to achieve the skill, the acquisition and practice of that skill does less and less for, um, for training, improving, or maintaining the capacity of the body. And this goes right back to where we started, which is the importance of assessment, right? Mm-hmm. Because my clients, and this happens all over the world, but I'll speak on my clients specifically because it's who I work with, they usually within the first year of their training, they have a question like, man, it doesn't feel like I'm getting any better at this. It doesn't feel like it's getting easier. Shouldn't this be getting easier? I'm, look at all this time I'm spending on this. Mm-hmm. And I have to explain to them, oh, it never gets easier. Mm-hmm. You get better. Right, those are different things. It never gets easier, but you will get better. And then I, I tell them, like, if I'm doing my job right, if I assess you properly, and we go through reassessments, and I give you training, my job is to find what you're not good at, what your deficits are, what you're lacking in, what capacities have been lost due to the last season or whatever else. And if I do that well, then I'm only giving you things that you need to work on that your body is not good at due to what you've accommodated from from the past. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to chase new adaptations, if we're going to try and gain capacity, if we're going to do any of these goals that we have. If I did my job right, it never gets easier because training, the goal of training is not to get easier. That's because your job is, I don't know if I've mentioned it this way, but your job is literally not to assess people to find out what they can do. It's to assess people to find out what they can't do right. constantly. So as a trainer, what, what need be done with your client is you look at your client as this entity that is able to do and is able to not do certain things. And your job is to decide what is it that they can't do because of a lack in a particular capacity and then fight towards that capacity. Right. Um, but the problem is, is that we, we go in the exact opposite direction where we'll literally ask people, what types of things do you like to do? Or what's your, what exercises do you enjoy doing? Oh, let's, let's do those exercises. Because we get muddled up with things we enjoy versus things we do in order to achieve changes in capacity. Right. Now, I'm not saying you can't, at the same time, you can't take someone and expect them to exercise in a way that they completely hate doing right. over and over. There are trade-offs where, you know, using your body in a way that you are able to accomplish goals, these are all, you know, there's built-in reward mechanisms um, in the body that we need to take advantage of. And enjoyment of activities. Enjoyment of, of activity is one of those things. But there is something to say that you can't 
exclude things that are hard in order to continuously do things that you're good at right. just because you want those rewards. And that's a conversation I have with people all the time about like, I'm gonna meet you where you are, right? Mm -hmm. Like you tell me what you wanna do, you tell me what you wanna do with your body, we'll compare that to what your body can do and that's the point A versus point B conversation, mm -hmm. right? And I still wanna give you as much of the things that you like to do just within the constraints of what your body's physically capable of. So I'll find a lateralization of an exercise that mimics the thing that you really like but that's going to put you in a much more better position to actually accomplish what we wanna accomplish in the long run, which is the point B you told me, not, the, not something I decided, mm -hmm. it's what you told me. And that's, once again, the conversation with the difference between a hobbyist and, and a professional athlete. If I'm working with a pro athlete, it's, it's a little bit less lenient there. It's like, we have 10 weeks. Mm -hmm. We can only accomplish so much in 10 weeks. Mm -hmm. It's not that I don't care what you like, but like we need to use every usable minute of your training program to try and get as, squeeze as much juice out of this as possible, mm -hmm. right? But for most people, that's nothing. Most people aren't training pro athletes out there. Most people are training gen pop, friends, family, local clientele, and they, we, we do have to treat it a little more like, okay, what do these people like to do? Mm -hmm. And how can we make sure that we're training them in a way that's not making them physically worse and shifting them towards their goals over time, respecting what we know about how the body responds to these forces. And this problem also feeds into the volume problem, which we talk about a lot, is that the other, the other problem is that people have this, you know, I want to do the things I want to do, um, but I also want to feel, you know, the soreness or the, I want to feel like the exercise did something. So what people tend to do is they tend to start to patternize themselves. And then when the body accommodates to that patternization, they tend to try to solve that problem. The problem of I, tr I trained again, I'm not sore this time. I don't feel like anything. I didn't kill myself during my training. And their answer to that question is more volume. So let's the take the pattern. More. Let's take the pattern and let's run it again. And then you get people who are, you know, in the gym for long periods of time, um, and then that and then you know those people do get in shape, and then that becomes the hierarchy of, of importance. Like, well, look what that person's doing. That person's doing, you know, three sets of twelve, followed by a, a breakdown set after their warm-up set, followed by a drop set in order... Like, when I see people in the gym and they're training and, they, you know, after a set they start dropping the weight and they start dropping the weight, uh, usually what that means to me is that that person has a problem uh, with volume and the understanding right. that you're not trying to obliterate the tissue. Right. You're trying to get the tissue to decide to change. Right. And the decision to change... It, 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 it doesn't come with, with force over time, right? It, it, it comes with intensity right. put into a particular exercise that reaches a, a new threshold of the body saying, oh shit, I almost was not able to do that. Right. And as soon as you get the body saying, I was almost not able to do that, or I couldn't do that, right. that is the signal that tells the body to change. And if people would think about it this way, uh, the idea that I'm just trying to signal change, then as soon as the signal would be sent, they would stop doing that particular right. exercise and they would find their volumes tend to go all the way down. Especially if you have something as detailed as an FRA right. telling you exactly what you are and are not capable of doing in the three-dimensional environment that you're right. training in. Tell so, this is what we talk about, of course, all the time, but like to get the change we want to get the desired adaptation, like 
we are looking for a specific hormonal, endocrine, and metabolic response out of the human body to create the exact change that we are looking for. Let's just say elicit the adaptation that is increasing maximum strength or absolute mm-hmm. strength. Like that's not something you get to choose consciously mm-hmm. just because you worked hard in the workout. That is based off a very specific signal. In this case, it's intensity. That's what gives us that hormonal, endocrine, and metabolic response for change. But I'd say the main reason probably with that most people struggle in a gym setting is because they think effort and intensity are synonymous, that it's the exact same thing. I worked hard, so I deserve to get the body that I want. I worked hard, so I deserve to be getting stronger every single month. My numbers are, should be going up, but we all know then most people are kind of spinning their wheels in the gym. They're not getting the progress that they want. They're not getting the change that they want. They're not spending their off seasons well, if we're going back to the athlete conversation. So the, the mistake there is that because they think because they're working hard, it must be high intensity. But it just turns out that that's not what the science says. That's not, it's not how it works. Intensity is something you either hit or you didn't. Mm-hmm. So I always tell people, like if you, if you know the percentages of your max that actually get the adaptation that you want, I could have that. Let's say I put... Uh, only 25% of your max on the bar. Mm-hmm. I could still crush you with the workout. Mm-hmm. Anyone, right? Mm-hmm. We can make them walk funny for a week. They will finish that workout saying, that was the hardest and be- best mm-hmm. workout of my life. Mm-hmm. But we didn't get the adaptation we were chasing. We didn't change strength. If the, if the intensity was too low, even if effort was high, mm-hmm. if the intensity was too low, you will not get the desired change that you want. And then you then think, okay, well, if I didn't get it this time, I should add more volume. I should add more luck. I, I just have to keep playing with those dials, keep playing with those variables. And then they end up just doing the same thing year in, year out, year in, year out, year in, year out. And now they're gym rats, but they're not exactly accomplishing good good amounts of change i've seen this i see this a lot and then if you year in year out what you find is that that type of person might make some a little bit of progress you know their their bench is is getting a little higher and then oh yeah but then i my shoulder popped or blew out doing something that they think is unrelated and then it went back down and then they went back up and then it went back down but if you look at them over a five-year period it doesn't trend it, up. It doesn't trend up. <laughs> it, it, it trends either, it either stays even if they're lucky or they start to get gradual declines because as they're training their, their body to do this patternized thing and, and everything else is falling by the wayside. They, I, I, I had an idea, a thought when you were talking about that effort versus intensity. And it's, the intensity is, uh, is directly correlated to the, the capacity of the tissue that you're training. Right. Whereas effort is, is a men- the mental fortitude to try what, what hard, yeah. which, is, which is not, not the same uh, thing. Right. right? And, and that is the volume problem. There's, right. there's a misunderstanding of I'm going right now to exercise versus I'm going now to train. Uh, exercise, you can do anything and get exercise. You can, you can, you know, tap your head and rub your belly for as long as you, that will be exercise at one point when the body's systems start to utilize, you know, <clears throat> metabolism and, 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 and you know what I mean? And you sweat, this is, this is exercise, right. but this is not training. This is, this is, and not, I know we agree, but like exercise is better than not exercise. Exercise That's is we're great. We're talking about our gen population. We need, 100%. we need people to exercise, we need people to move. Uh, yeah. But we, often are in the conversations with people that are trying to accomplish something in X amount of time. Mm -hmm. And therefore the conversation has to switch to, okay, if we only have X amount of time, Mm -hmm. how can we best use that time to get exactly what we want out of that person? And even the fitness industry, like they don't have that time constraint Mm -hmm. because they live and breathe this stuff. 
but they still always have some kind of time-based goal where they want to accomplish something in X amount of time. And then we have to discuss, okay, well, if that's true, then here's how to best use your time to accomplish that. Um, and then that, that's really, where, like I said, people struggle with that, not understanding <laughs> that intensity is what drives adaptation. Like that's, let's, let's try this in a different way. Let's try not talking about <clears throat> the gym exercise, and let's try to talk about this with regards to cardiovascular Correct. or endurance conditioning. So as an example, I've heard, you know, I like combat sports. I've heard many a combat athlete or a combat uh, athlete uh, announcer talk about the need to hit the pavement and to run, right? Because, you know, if you're a fighter, you must run. Running is the greatest way to prepare the fighter, et cetera, et cetera. I think if, if I told people, <clears throat> do you see running as a pattern? They would, they would see that as pattern. Because a lot of people online, they'll, ask, they'll be like, what do you keep going off about patternizing and you know, don't do too many patterns and <clears throat> restrict pattern for skill work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so this might help explain. Obviously, running is a pattern. So what does that mean? It means that when you are expelling energy in order to run, <clears throat> you are doing that by insulting a predetermined number of tissues in the exact same way through time, right? And, and that's, that's what patternizing is. So when you're running, every time your foot hits, it's going to you know, hit in a supinated foot and then it's going to pronate and then the reverberations of that impact are going to you know, vibrate their way up the system and you know, the particular way that you strike in your shoe is going to vibrate in a particular line, which means it's going to stress these knee ligaments and these hip ligaments and this spine ligament all the way up, up the chain over and over and over and over and over. Now, the question becomes, what is the goal? In this case, let's say it's an athlete. What is the goal of that athlete? Is the goal to become proficient at the pattern of running and to you know, preemptively decide that those are the tissues that I want to accept these forces and, and alter? Um, or are you trying to train your heart to output a particular amount of energy or a particular capacity? In which case, the heart doesn't give a shit what exercise you chose. Right. Right? The, the, for, it depends. It's all about the perspective. Of right. course, if you're going to run, you need to get better at running. I get that. Right. But if you're going to be a mixed martial arts athlete... The difference between running and jogging and, um, you know, aerodyne work and uh, rope work, uh, that's only a pattern difference. Right. But it's not uh, the, the system, the energy systems that you're working don't care right. about, about the pattern. Similarly, with max effort work, um, when you're doing max effort work, the pattern you choose to apply the effort to is not as important as the effort itself, or the probably a bad word, the intensity, because we just said about, about effort. But it's the intensity that drives the adaptation. That's why when people say, you know, I deadlift because it's the, it's the king of exercises and I do max effort on deadlift, and yeah, it's a great exercise. Right. It, it is a way to induce a, hard, a large amount of effort. But if you're training a person and you're teaching them how to output uh, intensity right. and how to output intensity when it's called upon when you want it, you can choose any pattern right. and you can apply the same intensity to that pattern, which is why we say, you know, if you give me a jiu-jitsu player and you give me their training and I see that their max efforts are consistently being put towards bench press, where are the max efforts in the squeeze? 
Right. Well, the squeeze is just supposed to get better as a result of, number one, training mm-hmm. on the mats, which, by the way, how often do you squeeze? Like, if you're rolling for 30 minutes, you might only get to squeeze once or right. twice. And even when you do get to squeeze, unless you're going 100% effort where the person is not going to tap, that squeeze is going to be a, oh, I got, okay, I'm done. Yep. So where is the training of the squeeze? And then people say, well, look, this, this jiu-jitsu player has been doing it forever. They, they have a good squeeze. Well, yeah, but they've been doing it forever. We're trying to decrease the amount of time to reach greater amounts of capacity. So right. where do you put, where does the nervous system learn to, to put out all of its energy in order to squeeze from here versus to press from here? Right. And to the body, there's a huge difference. To the energy systems, again, it doesn't matter. Right. The energy system is looking at the intensity. It's looking at the juices that were squeezed out of your endocrine system. Um, you know what I mean? And, and that's pretty much all it cares about. So right. that might be a better way to think about it with regards to cardiovascular work. Yeah, it's, it's, it's conditioning, right? And they're choose- most people are using running as conditioning, which is a fine choice. But what the point you're making is that it's not the only choice. Because what you're training is your energy systems. That's right. Not the locomotion itself. Because they're not trying to become more efficient at locomotion. They're not runners. They're fighters. That's right. Right? So in that case, if our goal is not running, then what is the goal? It's energy systems. It's eccentric cardiac hypertrophy. It's trying to make more efficiency out of the, the cardiovascular system. Then, then we can choose whatever. And then maybe you could save impact of the lower limb for hitting the bags or whatever mm-hmm. else because you're getting enough of that already, mm-hmm. right? So once again, it's just knowing what do I want to get out of this person? What are we training? Why are we training it? And then what pool of options do I have to pick from to hit that desired thing? Mm-hmm. Just like the, the skipping and the running, like great for combat athletes, great for stand-up athletes because that's what they do in the ring right. conceivably. But guess what they also do? They also go in the ring right. to practice, and then people forget about that right. because practice and training, they don't see the overlap in practice and training. They don't consider that in the load management equation. That's right. Right? So it's like right. A lo- a lo- it's become a trend in the fitness industry. Load management, load management, load management. Calculate sets times reps times barbell movement. Yep. Sets times reps times barbell movement. Sets yep. times, and it's 20,000 pounds of volume. Mm-hmm. And they're just completely ignoring the 12 hours of practice mm-hmm. that went in there that's training the same tissue. In, as we know, especially in Major League Athletics, in the same patterns that yeah. their sport is. I, I, and I, it's not a, they're not even discussed. Load management is only if you could have a number that's exact with a barbell or a dumbbell mm-hmm. because it's easy to talk about. Mm-hmm. But we're not working with an easy system. It's a nonlinear, complex, dynamic system. You can't just have... We're not, a, we're not a computer. It's not a math equation we could easily do. I'm not saying that math isn't important. I don't, any, think, any I don't even know that good. it's not... The, it is a math equation, but the, the volume of equations right. that you would have to... Right. It's, it's, it's beyond... It's, it's, they're just saying, you put 20,000 pounds of load through your body, but where yeah. and how? And yeah. if you and I did the same number, did mm-hmm. it distribute the same in your body and my body? Because mm-hmm. obviously we know the answer is no, but they're treating it like it does. Actually, you bring up a, a pretty cool point. You can consider, that you can think about that. Like, if I were to draw a particular body and I were to somehow be able to map out the lines of tissue that are exposed to load management during traditional exercise selection, right? Right. So, you know, you go into the, the gym right here, you pick out 10 random people, right. what types of things do you do? The fact that they can 
they can um, translate what they do into words right. every single time is a problem. Right. Okay? Because the word itself is, the, when you name an exercise, the word itself denotes boundary conditions that you purposefully place on the body. So if I have that body here, I could probably take a red marker and draw out the lines of the path of, of where that person is, is getting the biomechanical stress. You know what you'd be able to do even better? is redraw those lines after you saw the person's FRA and you realize what they did. Yeah, 100%. Like if you did an F, you don't even need to ask them. You just right. give me an FRA, you can almost guess right. where, their, where their efforts are being I are know where towards. you feel a deadlift. Yes. So <laughs> I, I it, could tell you feel it only in your back. It's and funny not because in your hips. I, what is it like if I were to ask you specifically, when you're training a lay person versus a, an athlete, how big a difference is it? I mean, I have my thought. I'll give you my thoughts. It's, it's enormous. Like, when, I, when you tell me, you know what, I just want to, I, I, I do jiu-jitsu. It always goes back to jiu-jitsu, right? <laughs> I do jiu-jitsu, but I just, I do it. I'm, I'm not trying to, I'm not, I'm not Gordon Ryan. I'm not trying to become the best at this. I'm just using my body for jiu-jitsu because I enjoy it. It's good for me all the benefits um, of jiu-jitsu. If, if, and I also have, you know, you have three kids and you, you like to run, you like to do this, you like to play with your kids. They play soccer, so you kick a ball around. Half my clients are describing. Like almost all, like I, <laughs> the vast majority. Like when people say, oh, I train athletes, I ask them, tell me about this athlete. Well, this guy's a high school wrestler. Okay, but what else is he? Well, he also plays soccer. Right. He also, okay, so... He's not a wrestler. Right. Like, he is a wrestler. But we're not, we're not at the highest peaks of, 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 of wrestling here that we need to push things one millimeter further in order to get the advantage. So what does an exercise day look like for those people? And unfortunately, on, for us, it almost becomes more complicated an answer because I need to know everything about them. I don't yes. just need to know how they do in this pattern. Right. If you give me a lineman, I could probably run them through a few patterns mm -hmm. to realize what potential they have as a lineman. If you give me a layperson who just wants to be, I don't have easy answers as to what you should... The only thing I can say is you need to take their entire system and analyze what it is and is unable to do. Right. So shift it to be globally better. That's right. Over time, whereas it's like <clears throat> single digit percentage changes. Okay, so if, if we're talking that. globally better, then we have to address the problem of outcome measure. Because if I want the person to globally be better and I go, oh, well, you know what, let's see what your max squat and max bench and max deadlift is, or let's see how you run a, a 40. or let, These are... These are patternized outcome measures that will give you information about what they can do with their body, but will not give you information about their body. Right. And therein lies the problem. When people say, well, you know, I've not done an FR, I don't do FRA, I don't do FRC uh, type training, I don't, what, what should I do? The answer is I don't know. Like, I don't know what to tell you. <clears throat> so it's weird. Take the course is a horrible thing. I would never. You, you know that I, I I don't say that out loud because right. if you don't want to take the course, you know what I mean. People, well, this guy is just. I, I get this online where people they'll they'll comment and be like, uh, "You wouldn't say that because it's not in your 
paradigm of pushing people towards your systems. Like, I don't care if you take the system. It's perfectly fine if you don't take the system. But what I will tell you is that when someone comes in like that and they just... You have to tell me what that person's body can or cannot do. And in the exercise industry, I don't see the outcome measure that you would point towards. Not only to say that, but the outcome measures are skewed towards patterns that were used for sport development and they're skewed towards muscular output capabilities, mm-hmm. right? What can your muscle do? And I think that in very constrained positions. In very constrained and I think the basis of the problem overall is that those are not appropriate outcome measures. So what is the appropriate outcome measure? In my mind, in our mind, in the system's mind, the appropriate outcome measure is to measure the movable bits. So every exercise that you do, obviously the, the predetermined condition is that you can move to do them. So if you take that concept of movement and you say, well, I have to analyze the movements, even that is not great because the movements don't exist. From dynamic systems theory, we know that whenever you do this, the next time I go to do that, it's different. It's different. Right. So me doing this is not the same ever. Right. It's always going to call upon a slightly different way that you do that. So again, the assessment of movement is also not good enough because what is the if I'm assessing movement and I see you do a movement, the conclusion is you can do that movement. Right. Okay. But that only tells me that the movement is possible based on the system that you have. Right. It's a demonstration of what the system can do. Right. It's not a question of what it is unable to do, right. which is what we actually need to know. When people get up in Be- the morning... Because they- people's sport isn't the exercise. That's right. That, that, and we've talked, I know you've talked about this on your podcast a lot, but like, people's sport is not the exercises they're doing on the side of the gym unless you're unless, a lifter or, or a crossfitter. I mean, let's take crossfitter where they actually took... Right. Those exercises, and they made them into the sport. And compete. Go. <laughs> so to be honest, before CrossFit, what were people doing? They were training like CrossFitters. That's the, that, is the, that is the exact point. Is right. that, so it, again, another example would be you know, people that, that do flows. I think the other day you were talking about a shin box um, yep. transfer versus a 90-90 on right. Instagram. And that was a great – I don't know how many people understood the, the underlying premise of that. But when you're doing a shin box – you know, I do this. This is a good mobility drill. Right. It's a good mobility good training for my hip. But it's it's not. What you're doing is you're saying, hey, look what my hips can do. Right. Hey, look what my hips can do. And then the next morning you get up and you put yourself in the same mood and you say, hey, look what my hips can do. Hey, look what my hips can do. The problem is, is that over time, if that's what you do, 10 years later, if you show me what your hips can do, I guarantee you they probably can't do as well as they did back here. Right. Because time has moved forward and you've aged. Entropy wins. Entropy is going to win every time. And the fact that you've accommodated so well to look what my hips can do, meaning it means that over here your hips will not be able to do that. Right. You have to put energy back into the system if you want to even maintain. So let me go back to what we were saying. So what is the essence of what is the essence of the outcome measure? It it has to be at the joint. Like if you're looking from an evolutionary perspective, you start off as a blob of cells. Obviously, it's more complicated than this. A wonderful blob. You of know, cells. it's a blob of cells, right? 
And then in that blob of cells, of course, the, the collection of cells or the, the family of cells cannot interact with each other and the environment unless they can move. Their, their mu- movement must be put in so that a cell, which by the way, the, the greatest invention in the history of life is really the evolution of the cell membrane because the cell membrane made it so that you have these discrete um, concepts of inside versus outside. Mm-hmm. So now you have this cell membrane which is going to create an inside for this particular area of chemistry and then you have all of these other cells and they all then work together with the same goal. But those cells need to know what's going on in the external environment right. in, in order to defend themselves. You know, if you're a bacteria and you're just kind of feeling nudges here and there, you nudge away towards food, that's one thing. But right. as the complexity increases, you need ways to take that blob of cell and get them to explore their environment, to look for food, to defend themselves, to move away from predation or whatever. So how does that work? What happens is that blob of cells starts to create spaces within the blob. And those spaces are the preliminary joint spaces. And all of their muscle development, their ligament development, their cartilage development, all of that starts with this creation of space and management of space. And then you move forward. So what I'm trying to get at is the originating outcome measure that we should care the most about is the joint's function itself. That is what determines how tight your muscles are, where your spindles are, are, are set. Like if you give me someone who has tightness in their erector spinae in their back, as a therapist, as a, as a, let's say a massage therapist, they might think I need to rub that tightness. Yep. But that is not what you need to do. Right. Because if you rub that tightness and then pain comes down, so tightness gets better for a particular amount of time. But if the joint is deranged, the underlying joint tissue, the capsular tissue, the stuff that has direct cortical representation in the brain, no matter what you did out here to the muscle, if that joint is still functioning inappropriately, then that information goes to the central nervous system and then the central nervous system starts to set those spindle thresholds and then that muscle tightens up again. So it's a response, right? Absolutely. So to use the response as the outcome measure is to miss the, the what's the word? The, the, the behavior of, of, of what... Which is creating that response. Exactly. So you, I, I tell my clients all the time and I say it at the course as well, it's like, you don't get if you woke up tight today. Don't be mad. Mm-hmm. Your brain is just trying to keep you safe. That's right. Like it's it, it's it's taking in all the sensory information and it decided tightness was going to keep you alive today. Like yes. that is how you're going to navigate your environment well. Tightness is not a bad thing. You're unhappy with it because it's happening very early when we know that you actually have much more length to express than that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the tightness itself is not a bad thing. It is just a behavior of the tissue based off of the information that's coming up. And then, like you said, people just want to rub it away or get on a Theragun or whatever else and just try and tell their body, no, I don't want this, I don't want this, I don't want this, but your brain's smarter than you mm-hmm. and it knows better mm-hmm. and that tightness is there for very specific reasons. So if you don't go to why you have that tissue behavior, if you don't go to uh, the underlying cause of it, which is almost always down at a deeper level, which is why we stress, stress so much about the importance of the capsular space, um, you could keep rubbing that tightness away and now that's just a part of your three-hour morning routine because it has to be, because mm-hmm. you're going to keep trying to trick your body into having less tightness. But you can't trick your body to have less tightness. You can only train <clears> it <throat> to have less tightness. But training it to have less tightness is not even having the outcome of less tightness. It's 
outcome of better joints, mm-hmm. better space, mm-hmm. better afferents. Mm-hmm. And then the result of having those things is what's going to lead to less tightness over time. And that's one of my favorite things that I hear from my clients is like, they'll be several months into the program and they're like, I don't have to go to the masseuse anymore. I don't mm-hmm. have to go to the chiropractor. I don't need an adjustment anymore. I don't, I don't have to get these things. I, I used to have to on a two or three days a week basis, get these modalities done to me mm-hmm. to just feel like I could go to work on a regular basis, let alone work out or whatever else. And when you actually go to the underlying cause of it, you could have people feel the way that they actually want to feel. <clears throat> it's, it's a great point, and I want to come back to it because, you know, historically, we, you know, in my life, I know we teach people how to, how to train anybody, uh, but I get a lot of athletes that come to me. So you almost forget the, the importance of, that, of this concept that, um, oh my God, I forgot what I was going to say. I remember what I was going to say. Give me a second. I was talking about the lay person. Oh, like you were saying with regards to pain. <clears throat> if, like, let's think about how this works now. Going back to the jiu-jitsu player. I was at jiu-jitsu. <clears throat> I got into a certain position and my shoulder popped, quote-unquote. Okay, let's stop right there. Nothing just pops. Like I, it's, it's the strangest. Jiu-jitsu people are the worst for this. The idea, like their diagnosis of it, it just popped. And the but funny thing is, yeah, the funny thing is, is right before they say the word popped, they say the word just. It just popped. Almost any anatomical structure that ruptures, ruptures with a corresponding pop. Right. Right. Very few times in your body. That's one. Just popped. Just popped. <laughs> that is the one time where I can say, popping's fine. By yeah. the way, I can't do that with my shoulder. No. Right? It's, huh? it's, I can do all of my fingers. Bad if you could. But look, look, no popping. Right? So if something pops, you have an anatomical problem. Right. Like there is... There, tissue yielded. <clears throat> some tissue yielded somewhere. Right? And the thing that people don't understand is that every injury comes with anatomical consequences to the injury. Now, those anatomical consequences can often be accommodated for or compensated for, like you were talking about, by the body. That's why compensations aren't necessarily a bad thing. But what it does is it promotes the use of nonsensical ways to make the boo-boo go away. Okay? So you take this person, I pop my shoulder. So, you know, it's been hurting for two, three weeks, but it's getting better. You know, now when I'm rolling, I avoid using that shoulder <clears throat> in a certain way. I'm training my left arm and then I go, okay, it feels better. I'm going to try to roll today. Oh, oh, it popped again. Fuck. I got to stop rolling again. Right. L- maybe what I should do is I should find a plethora of, of things to do to make me forget about the problem. Right. I heard cold plunging <laughs> is, is good for that. Sure is. I heard sauna is good for that. I hear, you know... You know those vibration thingies you can use your phone? It doesn't yep. really matter. Yep. Yep. Just go like this. Have someone call you. Because really, vibration causes an analgesic effect. Every time. Rubbing, touching, touch-induced analgesia, cold plunges, yep. uh, you know, whatever morning routine stuff. And then people utilize this. It feels generally better as the outcome measure. Right. Now, a problem there, though. There's a problem. Number one... Maybe you did compensate using your other arm, and now maybe your game has evolved towards avoiding using that joint in that particular way. People don't know this. This is what's, what's weird about this. Let's, again, take the jiu-jitsu athlete. There are, Mark, how many 
different moves are there? Like, there's an infinite number. It's endless. It's endless, right? And, and, and that, this might be getting off topic, but the funny thing about jujitsu is, is that jujitsu is, because there's so many options, it is the, the living demonstration of the, of the natural selective process of evolution, right? From, from an injury perspective, which we'll get, but also from a training perspective. Like, if you do one particular move well, and that move becomes popular among jujitsu specialists, then what happens is that, uh, that move automatically gets selected for where people start to train the defense of that move mm-hmm. or, the, or the, you know, what how to, to counter do, it. how to counter that move. Right. And then the whole evolutionary Land, landscape, landscape shifts, shifts right. towards these other moves, right? It's like when leg locks came in. Like, and people don't think it of that way, but that is living, that is what natural selection is, right? right? To, at, a, at a larger scale. Watching that, it as an industry does it. Right? That, yeah, for sure. So getting back to the injury. So you hurt your shoulder, so now you change your game, mm-hmm. and, and now it starts working for you. Yep. Why? Because now you're doing things that the opponents that you usually train with are not expecting. Right. He went left. He always, goes, he right. always <laughs> goes right. Now he went left. And now you go, oh my God, left is the way to go. So now you train left, train left, train left. The right shoulder is feeling better because you're doing less with it conceivably, right? You've gone to the gym and you've selected exercises that will avoid putting you into the position which causes the boo-boo to hurt. Right. Okay. So now you've, you've evolved this way. Now the problem is, is as soon as you have to steer right again, mm-hmm. you re-injure. And what's the number one injury you're going to sustain following an injury? Same injury. The same injury. <laughs> right. Right? So, uh, options are taken away from the human body mm-hmm. way faster than they're given. Than they're, than they're given back. Yep. Earned back would be a better, yep. better way. Right? Yep. So in this case, the shul- right shoulder options diminished. So you just started expressing left shoulder more. That's right. right. And remember, using that shoulder more is not always going to make that better, right? But if you don't do dedicated work to bring this back to its prior state of function, and we always say, hopefully, furthering those capacities even more. Yeah, put right? a pin in that because we should talk about that more. So um, so the options came down, your capacities came down, um, load-bearing capacity came down, and now you're just avoiding it mm-hmm. so that you can keep doing the thing that you like. Mm-hmm. You know who didn't get the memo? Mm-hmm. The person you're fighting. <laughs> oh, yeah. They, they don't care. Yep. That you're yep. using your right shoulder a little bit less. Yep. Right? They, yeah. So now you're just using, you're, you're, you're working at 80% capacity, but the person you're competing against doesn't know that. They think you're at 100%. Yep. So you're going to do whatever you can to avoid using that one shoulder, and options are even less. And you might be slowly building it back up just by resting it, because that's a part of the process. Mm-hmm. But if you don't do dedicated training to bring back tissue capacity, you're eventually, like you said, you're going to get out of pain. If enough time goes by yep. and you're careful with it, you will get out of pain. But that does not mean you are just ready to go back to a competition level that it, it is what it was before. Nope. And we've had plenty of conversations about this, about like the return to play protocol, not just in jiu-jitsu, but like in other athletic things. A lot of time they use the outcome measure of pain. But as you know, depending on the tissue, whether it's tendon or ligament or capsule, getting out of pain does not mean that it is what it was before. Listen, the, and you can go online and they w- there will, I've seen, there will be let's say you know, physiotherapist or chiropractor, there will be someone telling you that that's all you need to do. Right. right? There, will, there are people who have such a, a poor understanding of the evolutionary process that they will claim that the body knows so much, like it's right. evolved so long and so that it can deal with these problems. Right. And all you need to do is keep getting strong. 
You can't go wrong with strong. You know how many strong people stroll into my office brutally injured because they were doing something not even that complicated? How easy would it be to take care of the human body if it was just strength training? Just get stronger. And then I I saw it the other day. And on Twitter, it looks so sexy, right? When you you have that little few sentences and you're like, the only way to prevent injury is get strong. And then in bold... Get stronger! <laughs> exclamation point. You can only put four exclamation points because you run out of room. Right, right. right? No, no. That, it's, it, listen. Stronger where? Or 100% you're in the area of knowing something. Yeah. You're kind of understanding the problem. You're kind of understanding the assignment, but you don't really understand the assignment. Right. Because when you get injured, it is not the body's job to adapt back to the pre-injury level. That takes energy. And if we know anything about your body, it's that your body is trying to conserve energy. So unless it is forced to expel energy in a particular tissue, unless you're doing that to make that particular tissue that got injured stronger, no amount of other strength is going to fix this problem. If you heard that pop, unless your exercises are directly being put into the tissue that popped, on an ongoing basis with progressive adaptation in mind, that injury, will your body will find a way to reduce the pain. It'll find a way to reduce the inflammation. It will find a way to alter the architecture of that tissue, even ever so slightly, in order to allow you to carry on. Right. But it will not retrospectively say, you know what, we have some time now. Let's make this capsule stronger. Let's right. make this ligament stronger. Right. That is the onus of the person training right. and probably the onus of the trainer to try to develop an exercise which will target that which, which is injured. 100%. Right? I have so many things pinned from the last few minutes of conversation okay. we have to go back to. Okay. One of the things actually from oh, like the conversation that was prior to this, which was just talking about decision-making in the training industry and, and how people want there to be an easy answer to something that's complicated. And you brought up dynamic systems theory. Mm-hmm. And this is something that we'll bring up at all our courses. But like when you're working with another human, the reason why I can't give you an answer as to the very complicated question you asked me, although it didn't sound complicated, but if you asked me what to do with a human being, it's now complicated because everything is a system. So we are a dynamic system. We are a biological system. We are a complex system. We are a three-dimensional system. We are an adaptive system, and we are a nonlinear system. Each one of those is a rabbit hole within itself to have to explain what each one of those definitions of what what kind of system that is, right? Mm -hmm. But we are all of those things at once. And I'd say, I think out of all of those, although they're all dense topics to dive into, the whole nonlinear thing is the thing that the fitness industry really struggles with is that if they ask a question like how many sets or how many reps or how do I do how do I what exercise is best for my shoulder it, it just popped so what do I do mm-hmm. it's like well you're not a computer you're a nonlinear system like there's no input that just equals the same output for every single human that does it mm-hmm. every single time so mm-hmm. what do you mean what I do for your shoulder you're asking me on the internet i don't even know you mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so since you're a three-dimensional complex dynamic biological adaptive System and it's specifically a nonlinear system. Like the answer has to be much more harder to get to than you think. Like I have to ask you 
a hundred questions mm -hmm. to even get to the start of how I would start to think about answering that question, right? But I, especially if I don't have that person in front of me and I can't actually assess them, I can't get to the answer, which is why the internet is such a funny place that people think it's a good place to give advice and information. It's not, mm -hmm. right? Which is why we stress so much like assessment over everything, mm -hmm. FRA over everything, because that's, that's where all the decision-making process starts because of the fact that we're a nonlinear system and it, it's complicated. You know what, but... <clears throat> I also do understand that people watching, people listening, people in internet and Instagram land, or they also may not be able to access a person that does FRA or take a course. So I don't want to leave them in the dark to sure. say, well, fuck, now what do I, I can't do anything. So if we were to boil this down, if you injure yourself, calling it a pop is not good enough. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're... You know, you're a simple-minded person when it comes to this. You have no... The fact is you should learn. You have to learn. Right. Like, there, there's, no, there's no excuse. You don't have to learn economics. You don't have to learn accounting. You don't have to learn architecture. But you kind of have to have some kind of base knowledge with regards to the management and preservation of, of self. Sure. Right? It, it's... And if you're telling me that you work out, you're telling me that you at least have an interest in learning. Right. Okay, so the first thing's first. When you get injured, you need a diagnosis. Right. Nine times, maybe five times out of ten, you don't need a diagnosis because you'll be fine. And, and to the extent that fine for you is, you know, I don't, my shoulder doesn't hurt anymore, but I don't do jujitsu anymore. Right. You know, I just play cards. So you're fine. Right. You're, but... But if you want anything more than fine, it behooves you to learn what has been injured. So now you get a diagnosis. What's the diagnosis? <clears throat> muscle, muscle tear. Okay, there's, there's things that you need to do with that muscle tear. Number one, you can't avoid the muscle that tore right. and let it heal. That's actually not what you want to do because when a muscle is healing... It's always a, a, a race between the healing with good quality connective tissue and the healing with bad quality connective tissue. Right. If you do nothing, bad quality connective tissue wins. This is not an... Uh, I will not put this up for debate. It's been deba debated for as long as, as literature has, has existed. If you want to go back to the... Um, the uh, Scar Tissue I Wish You Saw podcast. Right. I don't remember what right, number exactly. that podcast was with Dr. Straziotis. We've gone over the fact that right. injury does not lead MRI studies, electron microscope studies. It's, it's right there. Right. Injured tissue left to its own accord. Injured tissue... The following. tissue will fill in. It's going <laughs> to fill in. Right. There's go You're not going to be left with a gaping hole. Right. Just like if I slice you down the arm, your body just doesn't leave you with a gaping hole. Right. Even if it doesn't, the pieces are... Uh, it's going to fill in with some shit. Right. <laughs> but the idea that that's good quality stuff is wrong. Right. Okay? So you need a diagnosis. I have a muscle tear. Okay, so what do you do with the muscle tear? Well, if you don't put forces into it, what happens is cells... We're going to bring this right down to some to a level where people can understand, right? When you injure your something, something <clears throat> your body sends out this cellular cascade. Certain cells get to the area; other cells turn on that were already dormant in the area. You know, these are the cells which are going to rebuild your tissue. So now you have tissue. Let's just call them tissue rebuilding cells that are in the area. Okay. Now those cells do not work on their own accord. They need information. 
in order to know what to do. Okay? So what's the information? Well, there's hormonal information, which might have cascaded their desire to go to that area, right? The inflammatory response. Right. But there are no hormonal signals telling them what to do while they're there. Right. They might have signals saying, deposit new tissue. Which tissue do they deposit? It's going to be the easiest one to produce that can get spit out the fastest. The key is, where do they deposit it? Unless there is some kind of force information going into that tissue, the cells that are tasked to create new tissue have no idea how to spread out this new tissue. They're just sitting there and I guess I'll just put tissue here, put some over here, put some over here. So they get this haphazard laying down of tissue and haphazard tissue is not as robust as good quality tissue laid out in parallel bands. So you get this tissue that fills the gap but cannot withstand forces. So if you know exactly what muscle has been injured, yes, you let it heal, right? Some tips I can tell you with a muscle tear. Don't let it heal with the muscle completely shortened. This is a bad idea. If you tear a bicep, you know, not a full tear, you have to get surgery, but even if you do have to get surgery or if you get a minor tear in that bicep, for sure don't strap it up like this and let it heal because what happens is the body is going to heal to this shape and then when you take yourself out of the sling now you have a problem right so you do want to bring it to as much length as can be tolerated Mm -hmm. even when you're icing it or doing whatever you're doing you want to put it at length and you want to move it within pain-free ranges of motion such that you're not causing direct pain in the tissue being uh, that was injured. Right. You know and what I mean? a big thing is why people don't realize that's such a good thing is because at length yes. is putting a little bit of directional load on it yes. because you have that eccentric load that happens when your spindles uh, all get um, signaled to that you're coming to an end range position. Even if it's a modified end range position right now because you're injured, mm-hmm. right? It's still your brain saying, whoa, 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 we're done. So it puts that little bit of eccentric load on, which mm-hmm. is a little bit of directional loading, mm-hmm. which is why we don't want it to just be in that shortened position the whole time. Length is a, it's a, it's a topic that is, we can be, in our, in our seminars, we're very specific with the effect of length. But to, to wrap it all up into a nutshell, without the, the input of length, there is no creation of new architecture. Right. Length is what, what creates this, this, this force that tells the system how to create new architecture. What's architecture? Architecture is... What I'm referring to is the connective tissue scaffolding where muscles grow. Right. Again, this is taking muscles. The muscle that's injured, is take, it's a back seat in right. terms of the rehabilitation. I'm not trying to rehabilitate the muscle. The muscle will regenerate new muscle. That's not the problem. Right. It's where do you put the new muscle? Mm-hmm. If you have torn connective tissue, and I say deposit muscle, deposit muscle where? Right. There must be a scaffolding in order to deposit muscle cells. That scaffolding is going to be made better with the input of length. And if it doesn't, if you let the connective tissue just not get good inputs, it starts to become fatty deposits over time, Mm -hmm. which is not good architecture for muscle to grab It's not usable architecture that a muscle can use. It's right. So you do need to put length. You need to um, stress it at length in order to try to clear that range eventually pain-free, right? That, th- this is a generic approach to muscles that have popped, right? Right. 
And then once that, that, that you've, you've cleared that, how would you clear that? Well, you're going to put it at length, and then in order to increase the, the stimulus, you're going to start adding load to the length. Now, you notice that I'm just adding load to the length. What I'm not doing is telling the person to grab something, and within the length that's not painful, start to repeatedly do reps. Right. Why? Because when you start moving and repeatedly doing reps, you start to bias the exercise towards the creation of muscular tissue. Why? Because the way muscles move is where proteins slide past one another in a variety of different directions. Right. So the movement of these proteins, these movable proteins, is what is going to be emphasized when you're loading using movement. Right. But we just want to bring that, build that scaffolding. So you would start to load at length. Now, how much load? If you've damaged a tissue, you're going to start with no load. Right. Which is isometric. Which is the most load it could tolerate at that time. At that time, <laughs> which is why isometric starts the loading process. It's right. not because we just, it, we like it. It's, it it's because that's what it does. It allows you to load that tissue um, without excessive weight because you don't need that weight. Right. You need signal. So you really want to load at length a multitude of times throughout the day so that you continuously run that signal. And then as load tolerance gets higher, as you start to clear that range, then you can start to load the tissue and load it to length. Yep. Now we're jumping into the eccentric concepts. Yep. These eccentric concepts are going to take the, you know, the signal, lay down new uh, lines of tissue, which at one point isometric was enough. As you accommodate to those isometrics at certain angles, then you want to start adding load into that length, which yep. is eccentric loading. Exactly in the same lines, you know, not exactly the same line, but if you got injured that way, then you are going to be loading somewhat towards that injury. Right. If only because that is how to reverse engineer right. to load the tissue that got injured. What, now, what do they do in most rehab? Avoid. 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 I have a million, I don't know how many times I've heard, if you dislocate your shoulder anteriorly, for sure you want to avoid yeah. having your shoulder abduct and externally rotate. Right. Which is another way of saying... I don't want to speak to the tissues that right. were injured. I don't care if they're going to heal haphazardly. I just want them to carry on. You 100% have to load towards your injury. The I, hold on. Let me just make sure I, I <laughs> preface this by saying if you're dealing with a joint instability, if you're dealing with a, you know, a, a fracture, there are times. Right. But we're just dealing with a right. muscle, muscle strain, right. right? You do need to load towards the, the area of the injury. Before... I met you mm. and the system. I was a chronic ankle sprainer. Chronic ankle sprainer? Yes. Yep. Like a few dozen times per ankle. My whole life, at least once or twice a year, I'd have a pretty bad ankle sprain. And they would tell me, as they put me in air cast, try not to do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like that, I, I, that, thanks, man. Yeah, where were you, this, asshole? This time I, I did it this time. This yeah. time I didn't think I tried to do it, but I must have since yeah. you said that. Yeah. Um, and then, like, what do I do? Oh, well, you wear the air cast, and the swelling will come down, and you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. We'll be fine. Mm -hmm. It'll heal. It'll heal. Right? And it does, to an extent. But then I just roll my ankle again, yeah. because there was no Can force. I play basketball again? Input. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. I didn't say that. You, it'll heal, I said. No force inputs whatsoever to speak to what is laying down in that area um, to actually be able to produce absorb force again at some point. I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I want to stop you there. In this case, 
why wouldn't we just get your ankles strong? Mm. Right. Right. So, for example, the fibularis longus and brevis, previously known as the peroneals, um, those muscles are tasked to contract when the ankle is going over. Right. Clearly, they don't always work. Mm-mm. Okay. So, in, if they didn't always work, in order for you to tear the ligament, which is what you're complaining about with the pain, you first had to damage that fibularis muscle. So, you, you, you get past the muscular barrier, then the damage starts going into the white stuff. Right. So, why wouldn't, just, why wouldn't you just say, okay, strengthen the fibularis group? Because muscles don't do anything on their own accord. Right. Muscles are just at the whim of the nervous system, which is really at the whim of the information that it's getting from the afferents provided for by the tissue, in this case, that has been damaged, right. the, the, the lateral ankle ligaments. Right. So you can get a peroneal as strong as you want. Conceivably, it was strong before you went over on your ankle. I thought so. Right? But now, peroneal's damaged. Afferents, the information from that area has changed. So you can have the strongest peroneals in the world. And guess what happens 60 to 70% of the time in lateral ankle sprains in people who have rehabilitative programs put in? Recurrent ankle sprains. Yep. So I don't know if your story was over, but no, keep going. That's about it. Just the fact that... Even like I, I, most of the time, most of the recommendations, there was no rehab program associated with it. It was just let it heal. It'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but if I, if I did, it wasn't, it wasn't yeah. directionally specific. It might've been balanced. <clears throat> it might've been this, yep. like yep. challenge the ankle in different ways, yep. but not specifically to the inversion sprain, just challenge the ankle globally mm-hmm. because that's all that matters at that point is just being upright, but mm-hmm. it, it didn't actually do anything for uh, preventing future balance is a great one because that's you're you're told to balance so when you're balancing what is balance balance is the task of you, it's asking the nervous system to find ways to course correct right the nervous system has a lot of ways to course correct more ways than people think because most people think that you would be able to calculate the ability for the nervous system to course correct if only you can count the number of muscles and the direction that those muscles contract in right. and then reverse engineer how many muscles you have to train. Right. But the fact is, is that muscles do not work in one line. Nope. Muscles are not what people think they are. The not idea that the, 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 it's not a pulley, the bicep just doesn't do this. Right. It does a billion other things. So because there's the options to do a billion other things, the nervous system can course correct for a small ligament damage by calling on millions of other lines of tissues, avoiding the only line of tissue that matters at that that point that you need to start stressing. So even if you got your rehab, you have a red TheraBand, you know, go this way, go this way, go up, go down, and then balance. And, but it's brilliant that it does that mm-hmm. from an evolutionary perspective. The, because from yeah. an evolutionary perspective, it doesn't care about the ligament and getting it back to the prior state of function. It wants to keep you alive. Yes. So choosing the other options and now stressing different things that weren't meant to be stressed for this ligament mm-hmm. is a better short-term strategy, yep. but a terrible long-term yep. strategy for health. I don't hate evolution. I'm a big, <laughs> I'm a big fan. Big fan of all of this. It's, it's, it's incredible. It, the fact that there's so many... Um, there's such an abundance of options uh, that the system can use. The fact that, you know, in an area that might have 10 muscles, you actually might have 10,000 muscles because each muscle 
each muscle cell is in its own right, its own muscle that responds the same cellularly that a whole global muscle right. might respond. Right. So it's incredible. The redundancy is amazing. Yeah. But the redundancy also leads to problems. Prove it. Sure. Look at the prevalence of re-ankle sprains following an ankle sprain. Right. This is not an opinion. This, right. is, this is fact. When you go over on your ankle, chances are you're going to go over on your ankle again. If you've torn your ACL and had surgery... I've done this in rooms of hundreds of people. I say, put your hands up if you've had an ACL surgery. People's hands go up. I say, keep your hands up if you've had it done a second time. Most people's hands stay up. Right? Just get strong. You can't go wrong with strong. So you're saying that all of the people who had re-injuries, they just weren't strong enough? You know, these people... Just a few more deadlifts. A few more, you know, ankles this way, that way, up and down, and we would have been fine. Right? Right? And I'm, I'm surprised, actually, at the, the industry that we're in, that I'm in specifically in the therapy industry, that we don't see the specifics of this. Like, that, that is your profession. If you're a chiropractor, physiotherapist, you're a, or if you're a real detailed trainer, your profession is predicated on the idea that you are specific, right? That you are, are analyzing the system from a deeper level, or else... Literally, whatever injury you get, I could just, you know, give you a predetermined exercise program, which is what most people do, right? Oh, I know. I have. Oh, you have an ankle sprain. Hold on. You sift ankle through ankle sprain. Enter. Enter. <laughs> <Print>. <laughs> Red Theraband. Three times ten. Could you imagine? If Draw I, the alphabet with your toes. Can you imagine if I go to West Side, and somebody injures themselves? Like, let's say they strain their pec, and they and the, and the thing says Red Theraband three times ten. Red th- Some of these dudes use red therabands to floss their teeth. <laughs> so what is a red theraband three right. times ten? What does that even mean? Right. Like how is and you were talking about that before. Right. How is that a an outcome measure? How many how many reps do I need? Yeah. How many sets? How many sets do I need? I don't know. I know that you need to challenge that tissue right right to the point, you know, the the capacity of the tissue is here, it got injured, so now the capacity is here. Your job is to find the, the, the capacity, the new capacity, and just work slightly underneath it right. in order to try to slowly bump Bring it up, bump it up, bump it up, up, bump it up, bump it up. Going back to the person who tore their thing. You're trying to bump up. Now they can do eccentric load. Now they can do a little more eccentric load. Now after you know a few weeks, I have scaffolding. Now let's start to also put some red muscular tissue into that scaffolding. Yep. By the way, I hope this is another, this brings me to another thing. When you put red stuff, when you're training to add muscle, I think it's important that lay people understand that muscle is simply the speed governor that is used to function or to pull tension into the connective tissue. So that's all that muscle is. Right. Muscle increases strength. Yes, strength is speed. Speed is strength. So muscle, when you put muscle in an area, you're trying to teach that range of motion how to move through a range at a particular speed, right? which adds another area of complexity. So let's go back to that jiu-jitsu person yep. who was taken into an arm bar very quickly, very quickly, so quick that they couldn't respond and they tore, okay, or whatever it is. So now you have that muscle. Let's say that you, you follow the lead. You do isometrics. You do eccentrics, nice, slow, prolonged eccentrics. Slow then you go, I got to put some muscle in there. So you grab that TheraBand and you start, you start going at this speed. And now it starts to feel better. And now because it feels better and you say, well, I added connective tissue scaffolding, 
and I've added muscle, I should be okay. No, sure. you are not okay. Right. You are not okay. Because there's one more level of specificity needed here. And that is, what speeds were you training at? Right. Because if you were training at slow speeds, the repertoire that you've taught that muscle to function in, the speed menu is a very small menu of speeds that it's able to output. Right. Right? And if you're not training that tissue to, to contract with speed, the right. exact speeds that you're training with, it's not going to work. So I, I, let's say you take a person training wrestling and they get into a position where they have the underhook here and then the person gets up as they're pushing down and then bang, all of a sudden I've torn my pec off the bone. Okay? So the pec was torn off the bone in this position. I want to see the program of that wrestler or MMA athlete or whoever it is. I want to see what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Nine times out of ten they were doing the exact same thing that most people do, which is they were selecting from uh, uh, named exercises, exercises, right? And because they wanted to be powerful, they probably selected exercises that they have noticed other powerful athletes performing. A power lifter is powerful. I want to be powerful. I want to train like a power lifter. This is is an equation that's consistently run. So now you take that wrestler, okay? and you train them in powerlifting, or I'm being specific, but let's just powerlifting yeah. or any other name. That, so you're benching, right? You're, you're taking a bar which can only go so far. You're hitting it here. You're pushing. Your arm is bent at this degree, so you're pushing. Uh, and you've been doing this time after time, time after time. You're getting stronger. Right. You're getting more powerful doing this. But then your arm is put back here and in this position. Right. Barbell doesn't go back that far. The barbell doesn't go back that far. The last time you were back that far, I don't know when it is. I don't know if they were monitoring the ability for the humerus to move in the scapula in and of itself. Because if you have a restrict, if all you're doing is this, there's a, your whole shoulder uh, capsule will start to wall itself off in order to allow that to be done over and over. So I don't know if they have the, because Maybe now the, the workspace, the ability for the, sh- the arm bone to move in the shoulder socket is restricted. Right. So that workspace is restricted. Now, if you're going to put me back here, if the joint can't get you there, well, then the overlying muscles are going to stretch that much more. And now you, has to. And now you have muscles that are compensating for the lack of shoulder mo- independent motion that are at a very elongated position that you have not trained to in a long time because you probably didn't do any training at length right. to that tissue. If you did some training at length, now you've got to ask yourself, at what speed, when the person went down, and what was the speed right. that they went back into that position? And then you say, okay, when were you training at that position at the speed that would be needed to train the system to understand how to respond to forces coming in at that speed? Okay? And now you say, Dre, this, this, is, this is stupid. There is, there, it's so specific that, that you, it's impossible to do. It's not impossible to do because... Just take some planning. When I train wrestlers, I know the positions that they're going to be put right. into. As a matter of fact, the injury profile of a sport is supposed to dictate the training profile for that sport. 
If the injury profile does not alter the training uh, profile for the sport, what's the point of collecting that data? What's in the, first the place? point of knowing? Right. Right. If it, I, I, I've been to NBA teams a while, long time ago when I first started with them, and what's a what's a prevalent injury? Same one you had, ankle, ankle. sprains. I go, where in the program are you trying to prevent this from happening? And the balance. original, the, there you go, balance. That <laughs> was the original answer. Well, we get them to balance on a BOSU with their eyes closed while reciting the alphabet backwards in Swahili <laughs> while they're throwing things and they're touching and they're doing all these things. So in other words, you have, you have time set out in your training to display the ability for the ankle to course correct when doing random things. Right. Okay, but you're not training that because the ability to course correct is dependent on the tissues that the nervous system is calling upon in order to course correct. You know what the basketball player is never doing? Staying still on one foot on the court. For sure. (laughs) By the way, what they're also not doing is they're not being challenged at neutral because what happens is you go on that BOSU and you're balancing and you're, you're fighting to keep your ankle in neutral. Right. But that's not where the injury happened. It happened at length. It happened all the way outside of neutral. Right. And not only did it happen at length, it happened at length while 230 pounds of the athlete was crashing into right. that ankle. More if somebody else fell into you and fell on you and everything else. Now, you can say, well, you're never going to get an ankle that's going to be able to take you know, 400 combined pounds right. of force. However, that's why we say injuries are not preventable they're only, you, you are able to mitigate the right. damage. Less damage happens. And how does less damage happen? You increase the force absorption capacity where? In the exact tissue where the force will be felt. Right. I'm just going to get strong. Just getting strong in a billion other ways is not the way that you needed when that injury occurred. So what should that wrestler have been doing? That wrestler should have known you know, a wrestler, this is very common. Right. You know, you're getting a wizard. This position is very common. Shoulder in extension is very common. Abduction, external rotation is very common. This position is very common. Now, and there are speeds and that are, are very common. And every one of those positions yeah. and every one of those speeds, an exercise can be developed to mimic that. What's the name of it, though? There is no name. And that's the problem. Exactly. The problem. So. If you're a layperson, uh-huh. I get it. Right. It's a, there's a lot. Right. But if you're a trainer, you have no excuses. Right. Right. I want to go back to something you said about the wrestler example, because you insert any sport here at this point, really. Mm-hmm. But the wrestler, because he wants to be powerful, chose another powerful person to replicate, which was the power lifter. Mm-hmm. But what he's really doing, if we acknowledge, we talked about it earlier, that powerlifting is its own sport. Mm-hmm. It has its own rules. It has its own goals. The wrestler is choosing another sport to do in his downtime or training time. Mm-hmm. But notice that the power lifter isn't wrestling in his downtime. That's right. Because that would be a huge waste of time. Yep. Because he does not need the demands that the wrestler has. Mm-hmm. He needs to just understand his sport. What am I trying to express? What are the displays of strength that I need to accomplish? What tissue behaviors do I need to train to accomplish getting from my point A to my point B? So wrestling doesn't fit into any of that. Nope. So why are our athletes looking up to Olympic lifting and mm-hmm. powerlifting as the best expression of power or speed or whatever else. No, those are just specific sports that are using power and using speed in their displays of strength or athleticism. Mm-hmm. But you, like you don't, if you're a runner and you want to get more explosive, that doesn't mean explosive means Olympic lifting. Mm-hmm. No, that's just one expression of explosive power. I, I would say that you could probably 
garner a lot of information from power lifters in the way they approach the programming, mm-hmm. you know, frequency as to how they to develop over it. Yeah, like for, another example is, uh, you know, in a soccer team, they might say, or a hockey team, they might say, we need more power. So they'll give them to the sprint coach. But I don't need them to make them a sprinter. It might be that the sprint coach, ha- coach has exercises that put the person in the parameter so that their tissue responds by getting faster. Right. But the coach's job of the hockey team is to take that concept, the conceptual framework as to how they approach, you know, and then apply it not to the sprinter, bo- but to the, the hockey player body, right. which means the exercises are going to change. Right. They're not going to be the same. Now... If you do, you, you, you will get faster probably at, at hockey. This is not a one-to-one. Right. But eventually, there will be diminishing returns. Right. And that's the problem. There always is. And, and the problem with the human body is, is that if you don't train, if you do anything, you're going to get better. Right. To a point. So and people, people get started on the wrong foot, not because exercising is bad, mm-hmm. but they just start to believe, oh, I could do anything and any amount of sets and yep. any amount of reps and any exercise that I see other people doing. And I seem to get better because yep. of it. Yep. Because this but that one, doesn't last long. It doesn't last. And then the repercussions of that don't come direct. They come in the form of nagging injuries. They come in the form of re-injury. Right. Right. They come in the form of. You know, and people don't necessarily correlate that to being the problem. Right. But you know, there's people I've have been bench pressing for their for extensively since they were they're 40 years old for 20 years. Yep. You were bench pressing for 20 years. You should bench press 17,000 pounds. How much do you bench press? And, they, and then when you actually get the answer, I bench press approximately the same amount that I used to bench press. Right. With a shoulder that feels worse. Okay, so you see what I'm saying? With the, with the shoulder that hurts more. So something is, is, is drastically wrong. Right. Um, and it might not be as obvious as it should be. That's what I got, I got to before. Unfortunately, the problem really lies in the fact that most people just don't put forth the effort to understand how the body works well enough. Right. It's a misunderstanding. But, I mean, if you're a jiu-jitsu player, you have, you have to learn. Like, you, you do. You need to learn about the body, you have to ask questions about what jiu-jitsu is that makes it a something right. that soccer is not, and the essence of that something needs to be trained in a progressive manner in order to increase the load-bearing capacities that are involved in, in jiu-jitsu, yep. right? You're not gonna lose a jiu-jitsu match because you didn't deadlift enough. Right. It's so insulting to the sport or right. to the, the art of jiu-jitsu to say, you know what, if I only had... I've, I've almost never Five heard... Five pounds on my deadlift. I've never heard that. a player say, I, I could have got out of that rear naked choke if only I had Romanian deadlifted 20 more pounds. Right. I've never heard that. Right. Usually they say that I lost specific capacity in my ability to, let's say, keep hold of the arm in this position. And then I go, well, when do you train that? I don't. And then a lot of people will say, well, then you have to train everything. Well, you don't have to train everything. You just have to have a more suitable outcome measure that represents the function of the entire system, right. i.e., what do your joints do? What are they capable of? In what directions are they capable of absorbing force and applying force? In what directions are they capable or incapable of applying or absorbing forces? 
take training and direct them at those ranges. Right. And since sports are so dynamic, like good programming doesn't make everything better all the time, year round. It, we it, live I in reality. It never does. Never does. Yep. So like good program, people that are the best at program are saying, hey, for this block, we're going to try and bring this up, bring this up, bring this up. Mm-hmm. And we kind of just have to hope to hope to maintain the other qualities. Mm-hmm. And when we move into our next block, we're still going to keep this one, but now we're also going to work on this, and we're going to work on this, and work on this, and try to maintain these other qualities that we brought up in the last program. But they, in reality, land, they're going to fall a little bit because you're no longer putting a ton of attention towards them. Mm-hmm. Another block, we're now going to bring this up, this up, this up, and try and maintain this. So things are always rising and falling, rising and falling, and the people that are best at programming just play with these dials and variables enough to co- keep things rising more than falling. So if enough time goes on and you have someone that's programming for you well long enough, you end up generally globally better mm-hmm. and uh, able to put more output into whatever the thing that you're training is. I think also the problem is people also have an un- unrealistic fear of losing <coughs> uh, capacities that they've gained. Yes. So, you know, like I, I've, and that's I, I try and work on everything at once. Yep. I've seen, I've seen this. You know, I have my knee is is really bad. Why is your knee bad? I have patellofemoral problems, uh, and I have medial joint arthritis. And let me see your program. You squat twice a week. Well, yeah, of course I squat twice a week. Why? Well, I have to maintain these things. I have to maintain my quads. Right. I have to maintain my my ability. My quad. There's no other way. So it, if you just took all of the energy you were putting into your squatting. And redirected that energy into maybe fixing your joint capsule in your knee or the, or increasing your workspace in your hip. Like when we do workspace in the hip, I I mean, I'm, I'm running these people at maximal efforts. Remember we talked earlier about if you're doing cardiovascular work and you're doing it for the purpose of improving heart function, your heart doesn't give a shit about what exercise you chose. It's just within a certain range, it's, for a certain time, it's getting the adaptation we that's, want. That's all that really matters. Right. So if I take all of the energy that you've been putting into your max effort squat, and I said, you know what? Let's take a six to eight week wave out of your squat and apply it towards giving your hip the range of motion it needs to squat well. People think they're going to lose their quad size. Like they... People, you know, people don't work out for a week. They look in the mirror and they go, oh my God, I've deflated. Right. And then I got to get the, I got to go back into the gym. I got, I got to do this particular area of my quad because this, I'm going to lose the teardrop shape of, and you know, I always laugh with people because, you know, we get to see people over and over and over. And for the most part, people stay the same. Mm -hmm. Like people get, it doesn't build quickly. Yeah. You're you're 165 pounds. You generally look like this. Yeah. You got an injury, it's, it's three weeks later. Guess what? You're probably 165 pounds and you probably look the same. Yeah. Ten years later, you've been doing all of the amazing training you've got. Guess what you look like? Yeah, it's 165 pounds. Unless you're really going after a capacity. Right. Like, I started bodybuilding. I started this. Right. You have plenty of time to alter where energy goes in order to fix the problems. Like if, if you're not trying to train the problems, what's the point of this? I just want to do things I'm good at. Is what, <laughs> I, I really think that the, the dopamine serotonin reflex, if we're going to call it that, is what's being served in most people's training. 
right? It's a, I'm going to the gym today. What's the day? Oh, it's arm day. Don't mean, don't mean, don't mean, don't mean. You're driving to the gym. Don't mean, don't mean, don't mean, don't mean. You get in front of the mirror. You start training. You see the vein. Serotonin. Yeah, I love this. This feels amazing. And then you, next day, what do I got to do? I got leg day. Fuck. Don't mean, don't mean, don't mean, don't mean, don't mean. Just a little bit. Just, just not a little to bit. Say. And, then, and then these, these, like everything you do, if you think about it from the dopaminergic pathway, everything you do or have ever done or like to do or will ever like to do is, is a, an addiction. Yes. Everything. Like everything, 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 everything is an addiction. Right. You're just at the whim of your, your hormonal outputs and, and, and when dopamine's released versus when you're here and now, neurotransmitters, your adrenaline, norepinephrine, serotonin, this chemical balance is what you're playing with. Which is what makes everything we're saying a little more difficult for some people because I told you earlier, like, if I do my job right and mm-hmm. I assess you and I give yeah. you what you need, yes. it is not going to trigger the same dopamine as arm day. No. Right? And you are not like, you're going to struggle with it. Mm-hmm. It's going to be hard. It's often uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It is working a capacity that has been lost. And you told me based off your goals that you want it back. So we have to work on it. We have to train consistently and attack this in a mm-hmm. way that's going to, to change your, your biology. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is not as fun as arm day. It is not as fun as arm day. Yeah. Nothing is as fun as arm day. Right. Yeah. For sure, calf day is not as fun as arm day. Well, some, some would argue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you want to do some general questions? Oh, we're good. Yeah, that, that was How no longer mastering the systems. We were trying to do a mastering the systems, and it became a podcast. I think it, what was it? the topic of the podcast? I don't know. I have it's, no it's idea. Topic is convo with Dre.